0: Tonight, please again join me as we turn together into the book of Revelation and continue to consider the letter to the Church of Ephesus. We'll read again chapters 2, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and then we shall pray and consider the continuation of this message regarding the faithfulness of the church at Ephesus. Revelation chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These things says he that holds the seven stars in his right hand, he that walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, and your toil, and patience, or steadfastness, and that you cannot bear evil men, and did try them that call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you did find them false, and you have patience, and did bear for my name's sake, and has not "'Grown weary, but I have against you "'that you did leave your first love. "'Remember, therefore, whence you are fallen, "'and repent, and do the first works, "'or else I come to you "'and will move your lampstand out of its place "'unless you repent. "'But this you have, that you hate the works,' Of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him that overcomes, to him will I give to eat. Of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now again, please, let's draw near to God in prayer. Our Father, your people meet together tonight needing a word from you, needing the comfort of a heart distressed by sin and the world and Satan. Your people desire again to know what it means to have the favor of their God upon them, to know and be reassured of your promises. Your people have need of light, and sight that they may see wondrous things out of, their, out of your law and may correct areas of behavior and attitude that are displeasing to you. Lord, we desire to be pleasing to you. We know that in ourselves we're not, but we believe that through your Son, who is our substitute and our representative, our great high priest, that we are accepted into Your presence and favor. And we desire tonight to be enabled, O Lord, to know that You love us by knowing that You spoke to us. We need to know the truth. We need to see Your Word and to love it. We need our hearts warmed. Our countenances lifted. We need our sins reproved and corrected. And so, our Father, because we, Your children, have need... We ask you in your love for us to come and meet our need. We ask you to help us, Lord, that this will not be an exercise of cold formality or an exercise of vain ritual, that it may, we may sense the communion of Christ and the brethren as we sit under your word, that there may be a naturalness about us, that there may be unction and utterance given to the preacher, and ready hearing and ability to understand and retain given to the hearer. We pray our visitors would know that they've been in the midst of the people of God and the God of this people, and that those who sit in our midst strangers to the grace and the power of Jesus Christ, which transforms lives, that they may know when they leave the power of God upon their own souls. O Lord, we ask for that which we hardly know how to pray for. But we're not unused to not knowing how to pray. And it's not new to you that we know not what to pray for as we ought. But you've said in your word that your Spirit makes intercessions for us with utterances and groanings unable to be spoken. And so through Him, in the name of the Lord Jesus, O oh God, hear our prayer and draw near now in the preaching of Your everlasting Word. May everything said that's true be owned of You and born to the heart of every one of us and the results produce glory to Your name and progress to Your truth. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask it. Amen. Now tonight we continue to consider the letter to Ephesus and the particular portion of this letter which speaks of the faithfulness of the church at Ephesus. Last time we looked at the service of the church itself as it served the Lord. And we noticed that that was characterized by an endurance and consistency in arduous service to Christ and his cause and that it enjoyed a discernment which resulted from an application of thorough scrutiny. And then we examined the first two of the words that are listed in this letter when the Lord gives commendation to them. In verse 2, he said, I know your works. And we saw that that was the word that means all manner of labor, whether good or bad. And the Lord has his eye upon it, and he sees it and is aware of the labor or the work of the church in Ephesus. And we noted by that word that we saw a church occupied in the ordinary required duties of maintaining the purity of the truth in its proclamation. And then we saw the second word which the Lord employed to commend the church, the word toil, the word toil or labor, And it's the Greek word kopon. It literally means troublesome labors or sacrificial service. And from that we saw a church which was marked by its tenacious adherence to the integrity of the truth in its practice. Having been commended for maintaining the purity of the truth in its proclamation, The Ephesians are now commended for their tenacious adherence to the integrity of the truth in its practice. They are not only proclaimers of the faith, but guardians of the faith. They discerned those in their midst who were not true to the faith. They tried them. They did not pass judgment before they learned the facts. It was a fair trial, and they found them not true. And they would not tolerate them. The Lord says you cannot bear those that are evil. And then we saw further down that they hated the works of the Nicolaitans, which the Lord himself also hated. Well, tonight I want us to go further and consider the the third word in this commendation of the Lord, the word patience, literally steadfast endurance. This is a word from the Greek money and it means literally to abide under and that usually is applied to the practice of enduring underneath heavy service or suffering. You have abode under a heavy load of suffering in your toilsome labors. The Lord commends the church, not only for their works of maintaining the truth of the gospel in its proclamation and for guarding the integrity of the truth in its practice, and it's a troublesome thing to do so, but he commends them for bearing up underneath the repercussions of such a guardianship and the maintenance of the truth, and under the suffering that follows their strictions with the truth, they are commended for their steadfast endurance. So in the third place here, we notice a church characterized by its readiness to suffer hardship for the truth to the end. Characterized by its readiness to suffer hardship for the truth to the end. Now, first of all, notice with me the cause of their trouble. We saw By the word copon, that the labors for which they were commended were toilsome labors, troublesome labors. You remember in Mark chapter 14, when the woman broke the alabaster box of ointment and put it on the Lord, that some around the Lord bothered her and questioned her and nagged her about it. They didn't like the waste of that money on Jesus in such an impractical display of emotion. And remember, the Lord looked at them and said, why do you trouble her? And the word's the same. Why are you bothering her? Now, their labor was a bother. It was not the ordinary erga or works that a church ought to do all the time. The labor was toilsome and troublesome. The very thing that they had to do for the Lord in guarding the faith was tough to do inconvenient, sometimes dreadful, and the results of that kind of extraordinary toil, the the sweat-of-the-brow kind of ministry, was that they were suffering for what they had done. And now we notice that they're characterized by a readiness to suffer hardship for the truth to the end. What is the cause, though, of this suffering or this hardship or this trouble that their troublesome labors have brought about? And I've simply summed it up into two ways. First of all, there was a reaction to them by those who had been tried and convicted of not being true to the truth. You know the nature of those who claim to be apostles and are not, The church tries them, finds them not what they claim to be, and removes them. What do you think those guys are going to do? Quietly go away and cause no trouble? Do you think they're going to just disappear into the woodwork? Do you think they're going to say, well, we made an error in judgment. We so thank you for noticing it and helping us out. We'll sit here quietly under the ministry and we'll submit ourselves to the life. That's not the way of false prophets. The false prophets try to steal sheep. They try to spread discord. They try to lie to people. They try to keep their power base or to remove it and drag others away so that they can establish it in another place. There's no doubt in my mind that implied in this very progression of commendation is the fact that these people were suffering as a result of their unwillingness to bend an inch or to bear an ounce of this unworthy teaching and practice. You see, it's a direct result of their steadfastness in the truth and their rigid labors in guarding the truth that they're caused to suffer. People don't want such a labor. People don't want such rigid application of truth, especially those that have been pawning themselves off as true people and who are not. When the rigid application of a guardianship of the truth is applied to them, they are shown up for what they are. They don't want such to be done. Now, if they can keep a church ever from getting to that level of rigidly applying the truth, if they can sort of keep the ministry from thinking that it's supposed to maintain a good conscience before God and men, if they can uh, pawn the eldership off to a concept that says, Don't bother with people in their homes. Don't bother with people's private lives. You have no right to meddle with the private lives of the church. Don't worry about how they discipline their children. Don't worry with their private devotionals. Don't worry about the relationships between husbands and wives and wives and husbands. Don't worry about the gossip that goes on among the church members. All you do as a pastor is answer questions brought to you by the membership, and preach to them when they voluntarily show up in public. That way the Spirit of God will take care of all the problems. Well, I submit to you, if that's the kind of eldership that you had, and if that's the kind that is normative, the Spirit of God has failed to take care of all the problems in the history of the church. It doesn't work that way. Christ put elders and pastors over churches for the express reason that people are prone to be led astray and blown away by every wind of doctrine. And when lying and deceitful men come in to lead the flock after them, as is the case in Ephesus, as was prophesied by Paul, you might well expect the whole flock to be deceived. There are several reasons that they're deceivable, but they're going to be deceived unless there are other men who are so faithful to the truth that they'll not let the gainsayer or the liar get by with what he's doing. And so those other men are supplied by Christ to stand for the truth and guard it, And somebody has to go in the process. Well, that very thought sends shudders through the false apostle. The false apostle doesn't want to be found out. He doesn't want the searchlight of the gospel and the law of God to be shined upon his heart. So he tries to twist theology. He tries to change the rules. He starts with, a, with the approach of church life and he wants to minimize elder rule. He'll call it elder rule, but when the elder starts ruling his conscience, he doesn't want to have any part of it. When the overseer looks at him and asks the searching question of him, he begins to get uneasy. Well, if that doesn't work, he'll go further. He'll change the theology of the Bible. He won't want to preach the law of God. He'll say things like, we are under grace, we're not under the law, or the law doesn't apply to Christians, or we would be legalistic if we began to require of the church certain types of behavior. For instance, does a church have a right in its constitution to expect its members to attend all the stated meetings of a church unless providentially hindered at the cost of their membership? Does the church have a right to tell people that they have to go to church? Is not that violating your conscience? Shouldn't you get to make that decision all yourself? Well, there's two different questions there. Yes, you should be able to make that decision for yourself. But the decision is essentially, do you want to be a member of the church or not? It's not a pure decision of whether you want to go to church or not. It's a question of whether you want to be a member of this church or not. Because if you do, this church requires that. And under those terms, the church not only has a right, but we believe a biblical mandate to require such of the members of Christ. For those who forsake the assembling of themselves together in the book of Hebrews are called apostates. They are not to be considered among the people of God. So we're not to consider them among the people of God. Does a church have a right? To expect of its membership and require of its membership that they be separate from the world in their practices and values and attitudes? Should a church put it in the Constitution? Is the church violating your civil rights? Should a church have the authority not to hire certain employees if their lifestyle is perverted and wicked? Should a church school not have to be required to hire someone who violates the very essence of the church's message? Well, according to scriptural terminology, yes it does. Now it's interesting in our culture that many evangelicals are leading a great political fight today. To stop Washington from imposing upon us a civil rights law that some have believed is going to require churches and church institutions to hire homosexuals or anyone else and not be able to deny them employment in the church because it's a denial on the basis of sex, which has been, by the way, gradually brought in as as an employment term through the last 20 or 30 years in our culture. And now sexual preference in some courts is being interpreted to include sex, to be involved. Well, those evangelicals are fighting hard to deny the government such a privilege to make such a law under the guise of the separation of church and state. The question is, though, why do not those very evangelical churches practice the kind of rigid adherence to other areas of morality and theology that they want to practice at that point? Why do they allow church members to stay on their church rolls who practice such things and not want the government to have a right to say you must hire them. While they call these people, or let those people call themselves Christians, I'm a member of so-and-so Baptist church. Here's the way I live. Everybody knows it. I haven't been to church in two years, but I'm considered to be an inactive member. Now, does the church have an obligation to deal with such, and not to tolerate such? Well, I submit to you that the Lord Jesus Christ is commending the church at Ephesus exactly for that thing. What it means when he says you cannot bear them means they don't have any comfort in place among you. Unless they change, they don't fit in, and you won't let them stay there. You won't tolerate such behavior. My Bible speaks of men in the church at Thessalonica who were lazy, who spent their time going from house to house, having meals at other people's expense, talking about the second coming of Christ. Spiritual, pious men. love to talk about the scriptures. Especially if you had a new chart about the future. But not working. Called busybodies. And the Apostle Paul says they are disorderly men. And he says to the church, you are not to have anything to do with them. Withdraw social contact with them. Don't treat them as heathen. Admonish them as brethren, but do not allow them to feel that that behavior is acceptable in the church. Now, if they were to persist in that kind of thing and become radically opposed to the church's discipline, you might well have to go further in your discipline. But the Lord is commending Ephesus for the application of a spirit of intolerance for certain practices and certain teachings. If the Lord commends it, brethren, let us be very careful that we don't condemn it. And you need to understand reality in this church tonight. There are those among even Reformed Baptists who do not believe a pastor or a set of elders has the right to apply these kinds of principles to people in the privacy of their homes. If they know that something's going on between a husband and a wife that's not Christian and not right, they would deny the elders the responsibility and the right to deal with it with any authority as being none of their business. As one said to me, it's none of my business what God's people do in the privacy of their own homes. Well, I understand that that issue is a very touchy issue, yes. If, he means that the, if we mean by that that an elder would have some sort of right at two in the morning to stick his head in the window of your house and to snoop around your house, I think that might be a dangerous precedent to set, an approach that might be highly questioned. But the question is not how that kind of right is exercised. The question is, is there such a right? And the answer is that the Lord commends the church for not bearing those evil men, not tolerating them. So understand that our Lord is commanding a church who has not been tolerant of men who love to be tolerated. And as a result, we believe that those men were causing problems and persecuting and causing difficulties for the church, as it always is in history. But the second reason that there was a trouble and a suffering as a result of their stand is related to this, but it's also extended beyond it. The reaction not only of those who had been tried and convicted as false apostles, but also of the Jewish legalists who were threatened by gospel liberty. The Jewish legalists, and we studied them last week briefly by looking back at First and Second Timothy. And if you remember, we saw these men that wanted to be teachers of the law. They loved to teach the law. Now, I'm not suggesting necessarily that the two groups are separate. It may be that among these false apostles were Jews. And they were applying certain legalistic practices to the church that were beyond the moral law of God but that, and they were included in those the church couldn't tolerate. But we do know that in Thessalonica and throughout that part of Asia there was a major problem by Jews who traveled everywhere Paul went and followed him. And when he would come preach the gospel, and when he'd baptize Gentiles, and when the Spirit would come upon Gentiles, and he would incorporate them into the church, Jew and Gentile alike, equally sharing the blessing of Christ, these Hebrews would follow him into town and deny the right of the Gentiles to have the blessing of the gospel. They would require them to be circumcised. They would begin to want to impose upon them certain Jewish rituals. Yes, we'll accept Jesus as Messiah. We believe in Jesus, but... You can't get to God unless you become a Jew. You've got to go through the ritual that we went through. And what did they do? They could not stand the liberation of the gospel. The apostle tells us in the Thessalonian epistle that they wouldn't let the gospel be preached to Gentiles to save them. They were opponents of every man and opposing God. And the wrath of God had come upon the Jews to the full as a result. This was what was going on in the church of Ephesus. And the Lord is commanding them. Because the church at Ephesus was enduring that castigation and that suffering that came from those whose lives and practices and teachings did not find an acceptance in the church. You see, these false apostles and these proud Jews were losing out. They were losing their followers. They were losing their fame. The church in Ephesus wouldn't allow them to teach a Sunday school class and to get a following to themselves. The church at Ephesus wouldn't allow them to sit on the platform and look like big shots. The church at Ephesus wouldn't give them a high profile. They denied them that privilege because of their unfaithfulness to the truth. So what was the result? They wouldn't stand for it. Their whole motive was to gain a ministry for themselves. The Pharisees had said, if we let this guy keep going, the Romans are going to come and take away from us our place and nation. That's all they cared about. The kingdom of God is irrelevant. It's our place and our nation that we want to preserve. We'll eliminate God's Messiah himself if the threat of our place and our nation comes to bear upon us. And so these people don't bow down easily. And they don't give up easily. And they cause problems in the church. And they persecute the church. They actually hurt people's bodies as a result. So you see, there's a reaction The rigid and faithful adherence of a church to the name of Christ has created a reaction. You saw what happened in Ephesus by Demetrius and the whole city. came together and had a riot because of the converts who got rid of their magic arts and sold the books and got rid of buying the, the statuettes and left the worship of Diana. The whole culture was upset. The whole town was in an uproar. They couldn't stand it. When true preaching is followed by true conversion, the town gets upset. I tell you, brethren, one of the first results of a revival in a church is a bunch of angry employers in the town. Because the folks working for them change. They they repent of dishonesty, and they start resisting the demand at the workplace to lie about a product. And the boss gets intolerant. The very people that accuse the church of being intolerant, let the church get near the money bags, and they'll become intolerant. Let a man simply do an honest day's work for a man. Let him be the most happy, the most productive, the most decent man in the office pool, and they'll eliminate him if he won't play the game. Let him be the only non-smoker, the only one not destroying the health of everyone else. Let him be the only one that doesn't fill the air with profanity. Let him be the only one that gives a whole day's work and doesn't punch in or punch out until he's ready to work or until he's quit working and doesn't draw a single piece of pay that was not agreed upon with his employee and they'll get rid of him if all he does is refuse to sin like everybody else. And when a true revival comes in the church, that's what the people of God do. They start refusing to compromise things that everybody gives on. Hey, man, everybody does this. What do they preach down at that cult that you go to? Nothing but the Bible. Nothing but what Christians have died for for 2,000 years. The fact that we haven't been called upon to lay our lives down, we've not resisted yet to, to blood striving against sin, does not mean that the striving and the fighting is not the same. And that the cause of the battle has changed. Well, these people had trouble. But the Lord commends them for their they their bearing up under the suffering. Now, I want us to look at First Peter chapter 2 for a minute, to look at the biblical doctrine of suffering for righteousness. I think it's important for us to understand clearly what God's view is about suffering. We live in a culture in which the concept of suffering is unacceptable. No one's allowed to suffer. And uh, there's no place for suffering. We are very uncomfortable with every form of suffering. I don't believe that's the case in the Bible. The Bible takes suffering in stride and in some cases almost seems to just condone it and encourage it. It's expected. It's here. There's no mention of getting out from under it. There's talk about how to act under it, how to bear up under it, what to think under it, but not a whole lot of talk of how to escape it. Now, we're not talking about a a foolish and irresponsible sort of giving ourselves over to the whip. We believe that it's a rational thing for Christians when great persecution comes to flee to another city if it's needful. There's biblical precedent for it. It was the practice of the book of Acts. The apostle Paul didn't stay in Damascus until they killed him, saying, well, I've been saved, I'm going to die for Jesus. They laid him down in a basket at night, and he sneaked out of town. The Lord didn't intervene with extraordinary miracle. He just sneaked out of town so he could go preach another place. I'm not talking about some irrational, never-never-land mentality, but I am saying... That there is in the in the life of the people of God genuine suffering that God never intended them to escape. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 18. Now this whole section of 1 Peter is a fascinating section. He's been telling us who we are. We are pilgrims and strangers in this world. This is not our home, nor are the things of this world the things we're supposed to be working for with all our might. They're not supposed to be occupying our primary attention. So he's beseeching us in verse 11 as sojourners and pilgrims to abstain from the things that are warring against our souls and having our behavior seemly among the nations that wherein they speak against us as evildoers, they may by our good works which they behold glorify God in the day of visitation. So in this context, he's setting setting the backdrop, as it were, for our enduring of suffering. He's telling us in verses 13 through 17 how we ought to submit and uh, how we ought to approach the government and those who are in authority over us and what our attitude ought to be. And then in verse 18 in 1 Peter 2, he says, Servants, literally household slaves, be in subjection to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle. But also to the froward, the pushy, the unfair, the snotty, the arrogant, the dishonest, the profane, the guy that struts around and you hate him. Unless you understand what you are, your attitude ought to be, you just sometimes you do, you look at the people of the world and you just can't. You don't think you don't know why the Lord would make you have to put up with it. Why should I, a saint, have to live and work in this kind of environment? Well, why should you be a saint in the first place, brother? You used to be just like him. Have you you forgotten so soon? I'm not suggesting you voluntarily and anxiously run into a working place that's filthy. If you can avoid it, avoid it. And certainly in our culture where you're not slaves with chains on your feet, you have some options available to you. You want to exercise them if you can. But if you are in a situation in which you enter into a contract or an agreement with an employer, and he's not fair, be in subjection to him. Verse 19, for this is what? Acceptable. If for conscience toward God, a man endures griefs, suffering wrongfully. Notice the word endure. They are griefs, they don't let up, and he stays enduring them. Not just a man experiences grief once or twice but he endures them as though they continue to come day in and day out he gets the same stuff from those around him suffering wrongfully verse 20 for what glory is it if when you sin and are buffeted for it you shall take it patiently in other words, I'm not saying that if you do wrong at the work and the boss comes in and berates you in front of your compatriot, that you ought to say, oh, pray for me, I'm suffering for righteousness. If you've got a big fat mouth and you get put in your place, don't come to the church and say, please pray for me, those, un- those heathen down there don't love me, They're- I'm suffering for Jesus' sake. No, you're suffering for sin's sake. That's what he's saying. If you do wrong and suffer for it, no glory in enduring that. Oh, Lord, I thank you for giving me grace to endure this unrighteous punishment. No, that's not what he's saying. When you sin and are buffeted for it, you take it patiently. What big deal is that? But if when you do well and suffer for it, you shall take it patiently. This is acceptable to God. For hereunto were you called because Christ also suffered for you Leaving you an example that you should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. In other words, unless you might think for a moment that he deserved what he got, he did no sin. There was no guile found in his mouth, and yet he suffered wrongfully. Who, in verse 23, when he was reviled, and you see of all persons, he had a right to revile back. This is God they're reviling. When he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, threatened not. Boy, if I ever get out of this, I'm going to get back at you. He didn't go home and tell his wife, if I ever get a shot at that guy, he's, he's curtains. Wait till I become the boss of that company. He's the first to go. Not the attitude of the Lord. But he, what? Committed himself to him that judges righteously. Who his own self bear our sins in his body upon the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were going astray like sheep, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Now, notice some of the factors here in suffering for righteousness, which Peter lays before us. The first is that suffering for righteousness sake is acceptable to God in verse 20 this is grace this is good this is acceptable with God you see it's not something that God doesn't accept it's something that God loves it's something that's gracious in God's eyes it's a good thing Whenever you suffer for righteousness' sake. Jesus doesn't look at those sufferers under him in his first big sermon that's published and say, Now, if they persecute you, oh, come to me, I'll comfort you. Although he will. His response to that is, rejoice and be exceeding glad if you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Sounds a little irrational, doesn't it? Our culture is given over to trying to remove the cause of the suffering. The Lord Jesus is telling us to rejoice in the suffering. And so what did the apostles do in the book of Acts when they were called before the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, and were whipped for refusing to stop preaching the gospel? They went out and rejoiced and, and counted it a wonderful thing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. The stripes on their back. As the blood was oozing and as the ladies or whoever comforted them and nursed them, patched them up and bathed them and put the medication on them and bandaged them up. Every time they touched the pain, an apostle would say, Glory be to God that we are now counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. When's the last time any of us shed blood? Because we were obedient to Christ and somebody else couldn't stand it. It's acceptable to God. Get that clear in your mind. This is not some weird quirk of faith that this, that's messed up ju- justice and the world's all gone wrong and, and we don't understand why this would happen to us. It's acceptable to God. And you see, you have to understand that if you're going to endure it. These aren't things easy to endure. You see, the Lord is commanding them for having endured. It's their steadfastness. That's what this word means, to abide under, Continually. They put up with it and stood their ground, even at the cost of perpetual suffering. They did what they had to do. They weren't afraid of men because they knew it was acceptable to God. The Lord proves it. He says, I command you that you've done this. In the second place, it's purposed by God. Verse 21 of First Peter 2 tells us, Here unto were you called. It's a part and parcel of the nature of a Christian's life to suffer for righteousness. All that will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's the nature of the game. You cannot live in this world with this devil who is the God of this world righteously and not suffer for it. It's impossible. There's no way to be a Christian without suffering. No way. Not in this world. Suffering for your Christianity. It's the Christianity that makes your suffering happen. There's no way to avoid it. Because you were called for it. God has purposed it. But you see the ground of the call? Why are you called? In what reason? How do we justify such a thing? Because, in verse 21b, Christ also suffered for you. Now, what's the connection between being called to suffer... And Christ's suffering for us. Because we were called into the fellowship of God's Son. And you cannot enjoy the fellowship of God's Son without entering the sufferings of God's Son. You cannot know the benefits of the cross of Christ unless you take up your cross and follow it. Do you understand that? There is no definition of that cross except in suffering. It is not... A nice, pleasant thing to bear the cross. It's not something you hang around your neck. It's not something you hang over the mantle. It's not a trinket to be worshipped. It's a chunk of wood to be borne. It's a heavy load on the soul. You don't deserve what's coming your way. You're doing right and you're suffering for it. That's the cross of Christ. You're called to that. If you're called to Christ, He suffered for you. In Him, you're going to suffer. Don't be amazed. Every time you do right and pay the price, rejoice that it's a confirmation that you've been called into fellowship with Jesus Christ. It ought to give you assurance in your faith, it's evidence you're saved. You see the point? When they get mad at you and lash out at you and tell you you're intolerant and tell you you're unreasonable and tell you you're legalistic. Now, were, we're assuming you're not being unreasonable. You're not being obnoxious. We're assuming you're gracious and consistent and you're not blabbing your mouth. If those things are true, that you're righteous in what you're doing, and they lash out at you, endure it, rejoicing in it because you were called to it. And it's evidence that you belong to Christ. He suffered for you. And that's the third thing to notice about it. You have an example for suffering. In verse 21, the Lord Jesus suffered for you, leaving you an example. You want to follow Christ? You're going to follow him to galgotha You want to follow Christ? He's your example. Now, at what point have you exhausted the modeling? At what point have you met up and Equal what Christ has done and fulfilled following the example. Whenever you have suffered and you have never sinned, he did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, yet he was reviled, he was threatened, he was beaten, he was blasphemed. What was his response? He took it all without a word, without a threat. His heart was pure. You followed his example when you've done it that way, to the end, till you're dead. And that's the pattern of suffering. That's a pattern that I've not attained. I doubt many of you have attained it. But there's an example there. The church at Ephesus was willing and ready to suffer hardship for the truth to the end. But notice something else about this suffering in verse 23. Here's how the Lord endured it. In 23b, he committed himself to him that judges righteousness. You see, the Bible is not saying to us that there's no justice. And you're just going to have to bear up under that stoically and say, well, the wicked will get by with this. There's no justice. I'm not supposed to say anything back to you. So you're going to... righteously and vengeance is mine says the lord i will repay saith the lord give place to wrath and commit yourself to him who judges righteously the day will come that if those people are doing wrong god will require it of their hands it's only the christian that can see that it's only the christian that can endure endure unto the end knowing that god's word is true because he sees it by faith it's only the christian that can wait and wait and wait and wait i just finished reading the life of joseph What a picture of this. What a story. What a a classic picture of this. A man who never got anything done to him right from his youth up. His daddy loved him above the others, but the others hated him for that. And from the time of his youth, his brothers were after him. They finally got his goat, threw him in the pit... The Midianites took him, sold him into Egypt. Potiphar gave him, but Joseph was fair. He was good. Potiphar saw it. Potiphar set him up over his house for a long time. And then Potiphar's wife messed him up. Lied about him. Accused him wrongly. What happened? He got put in jail. How long? We don't know, but at least two years. Probably two years plus some. And the the guys whose, whose dreams he interpreted in the jail forgot him when they got out. But finally, in the long run, the butler remembered when Pharaoh had a need. And again, Joseph was set up and finally ended up being the blessing to his brethren in the end. The life of Jacob, 20 years with Laban, who changed his wages 10 times, robbed him, cheated him, lied to him, gave him the wrong wife, deceived him. 20 years. And all through that, God kept prospering him and blessing him because he waited on the Lord. Finally, Joseph says those classic words in Genesis when his brethren come to Egypt and they say, we're sorry, we're sorry, we're sorry we did what we did to you. And Joseph said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That's how God, Joseph could handle it all that time. He understood That God judges righteously, and whatever God has done is good, and it's for His glory, and that's all I care about. And if God needs to put things right in our behavior, He'll do it sooner or later. I don't need to bother with it. I'm where God wants me. Here's what Jesus Himself did. He committed Himself to Him who judges righteously. So as a sheep led by His shearers' is dumb to the slaughter, He opened not His mouth. Brethren, you know what the problem is? We don't remember our Bibles under pressure. We forget. The pressure comes and we forget. Little verses of Scripture, they're not there. And then we blow it. Then, next Sunday, we hear the verse preached. Or we read a book or somebody... What we've got to get to. And where we're not yet at is the point at which the Bible so oozes through our blood veins that we don't forget it under pressure. We've got to get these kinds of principles so filled up in us. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly that when the crisis comes, we don't panic and forget. We commit ourselves to God who judges righteously. Pastoral counseling would be cut 80% the day that happens crisis at home would be cut in half the length of the crisis would be cut in half because the panic wouldn't follow all the stupid words wouldn't come out of our mouths that we have to retract tomorrow when we think get clear and back up and remember the lord hasn't let us down you have an example who committed himself to god he trusted in god even sarah in first peter three as he goes on with this same theme he talks to sarah I mean, he talks to the wives. Even of an unbelieving husband, how is he going to believe the word? He doesn't believe the word. And the explicit instruction of 1 Peter 3 to the wife is, They obey not the word. Let them without the word be gained by the behavior of their wives. Beholding your chaste behavior coupled with fear. Whose adorning is not on the outward of the breading of hair, wearing of jewels of gold, putting on of apparel. But the hidden man of the heart. An incorruptible apparel of a meek and quiet spirit. Which in the sight of God is of great price. Not always having a snappy remark to correct your unbelieving husband when he puts you down. Not always bringing a Bible verse and nailing him with it whenever he does wrong. Not always reminding him of where he's unjust. Shut your mouth. Be meek and quiet. That's the directive to a Christian wife who's living with an unbelieving husband. If she wants to win him. Well, that seems very unfair. But notice what he does. In verse 5 of 1 Peter 3. After this manner aforetime, the holy women also who hoped in God. The holy women who hoped in God adorned themselves being in subjection to their own husbands. I don't know if he's thinking of Sarah's experience with Abraham when he forced her to kind of twist the truth a bit with Abimelech and with Pharaoh, two different, uh, with Abimelech, whenever he had to, made her pretend to, no, it was Pharaoh, when she had to pretend uh, that she was his sister, it was his half-sister, but he sort of stretched it a bit and almost got her in big trouble and everybody else. Sarah had to take it and go through the, follow the orders. I don't know if that's what he had in mind, but as I read back through the history of Genesis, it looks like that's the kind of relationship we have here. Poor Sarah. What a position to put her in. But she hoped in God. And what God did. No harm done. I would submit to you that a vast amount of conflict in a home between husbands and wives, one of whom is not a believer, is the cause of the believer's unfaithfulness to God. A vast amount. Much more than we want to think about. Not suggesting that that justifies the unbeliever. Not suggesting it's an easy thing. But the principle of the Bible is not see how quickly you can get out from under the suffering. The principle of the Bible is commit yourself to God. Hope in God. Keep your mouth shut. God will straighten things out in his own good time. You keep getting in his way, the time extends. Every time you try to straighten it out, you put God off for a while. Every time you get in the way, God backs up. It's just like grieving his spirit. He doesn't need your kind of help. Well, that's what was going on in Ephesus. They committed themselves to God. They trusted in God who judges righteously. And he also is the God in the last two verses of 1 Peter 2 who has saved us from our sins. You see, if you can just remember that. How many times did you just forget that? What has God done for me? If I can keep that up front in my thinking, it'll help me an awful lot when I'm suffering for righteousness' sake. What rights do I have anyway? What, what do I possess that wasn't given to me? Who do I think I am? I'm the recipient of Grace. Some of you have troubles in your homes, perhaps. Some of you may have troubles at work. You have, it's almost all you can do to endure your relationships. I understand that. But how can you get grace and help to, to endure it? When you look to God, you understand that suffering for righteousness is acceptable to God. It's purposed by God. It's exemplified by Christ. You can trust God who judges righteously. And you never forget that once you were like that. And if it weren't for grace, you'd be mistreating some Christian someplace. And if you're saved, in a sense, brethren, that ought to be enough for you. It's plenty more than you had coming, is it not? We've got to learn that. And sometimes the pride that breaks up homes could be eliminated if each member could remember that he has no rights. He has no rights. We mostly get upset with our spouses because they step on our rights. They get in our way. They make us do things that we don't think are fair. They fail to give us what we think we deserve. They fail to cooperate with us when we demand it and expect it and think we've earned it. They don't fully and adequately appreciate all that we've done for them. And we believe we have it coming to us to be appreciated. And we get irritable. And we get impatient and it wells up in us and one day it explodes and we have an argument. And then maybe we enter into a pattern of argument. And then maybe our relationship just becomes a fight and then we don't endure it anymore and we split. Over and over that happens in our world. It happens increasingly among professing Christians. How do you avoid such things? I'll tell you how. The believer has to shut his mouth and endure suffering somewhere down along the line. The believer has to stop fighting somewhere. Somebody's got to be first. Somebody has to be the first one to give up the fight. Somebody has to give up his rights. Well, if the Lord Jesus Christ gave up his, I don't think it's too much to ask that we should give up ours. That's the point. That's the point of 1 Peter. And I think that can help us endure under-suffering. Brethren, some people hear what I'm saying and everything in their being resists it with all their heart's might. Because they know the implications and they're so proud they won't listen. They stop at their ears and they say, no, for me to give this up is for me to lose out. No, it's not. It's for you to finally learn what it means for God to supply your need. And to show His grace. And to uphold you. And to hear the commendation of Christ. Well done. This is acceptable to God. Some of you have never heard it yet because you've never borne suffering righteously yet. Even when you bore some suffering, you couldn't keep your mouth shut. You had to to breathe out some snotty word about providence. And you lost your reward. Learn. And I would say this to this young church. Do not be surprised that if in your lifetime you have to do a lot more suffering than you've ever had to do yet, and you better know the word of God when that hour comes, if it comes. You better have this kind of stuff drilled into your conscience. If you put it off, hearing it tonight, and if you don't, re- if you resist it and say, "Well, when the time comes, the Lord will give me grace," I'll tell you what'll happen when the time comes. God will say, "You did not receive the love of the truth. I won't get. A- I'm not going to be there to help you." You be careful what you do when God prepares you for future suffering with sermons like this. Ask God to make it get down deep. Ask him to teach you the principle of giving up your rights for Christ's sake and not demanding them. It. It'll make you a happy people. It'll make you a happy people. Happy people are people that don't have any rights. You don't think they have any rights. You never thought about their rights. I'll tell you what, the whole movement of civil rights... The motivation behind it is self-centered and self-serving. I'm not commenting about racism. I'm not commenting about racism. I'm not talking about the morality. What's happened, though, men have used that supposed moral position to advance themselves unrighteously. It is wrong for an employer to to abuse an employee. So what's happened? We've now used that to get money we don't even work for in labor. Now the suffering has taken other proportions as a result. The business has learned how to pay pay us back in other ways. Brethren, we're not solid in this society. What these noble, wonderful, loving people are all about in this civil rights business is mainly votes and money. Because I haven't noticed a great advancement on the part of those poor folks that have been voting for them all these last 50 years. There's more poor today than there were when they started making promises to them. If you have compassion on the poor, follow the example of Christ and teach them to suffer for righteousness' sake. And when they get to glory, it'll be worth it. And I'm fully aware that that sounds like pie in the sky by and by. I don't apologize for it. It's a piece of pie. I look forward to having it. Don't let the world cow you down from biblical truth and biblical example and biblical practice because of some perceived morality that those who love immorality claim to be practicing. The church at Ephesus, I believe, understood enough of this to get the commendation of the Lord. You have been steadfast. You have borne. You have not grown weary. You have endured under the pressure. But notice finally this. Not only the endurance under pressure and the suffering for righteousness' sake, at the cause brought about by the reaction of those whom they wouldn't tolerate. Notice the motive for their endurance. The Lord says, verse 3, You have patience and did bear for my name's sake. It's interesting how that the name of Christ is the cause of the problem in the first place. If it weren't for the Lord Jesus, we wouldn't suffer. If he hadn't given us the law of the Lord's Day, we wouldn't have people mad at us for not working on the Lord's Day. We wouldn't have professing Christians around town condemning this church because we won't let our church go out and go to the lake on Sunday without coming under some sort of admonition. There are folks that won't come to this church because of our rule on the Sabbath day. That's the only reason. They love everything about the place, but they don't like the way we handle the Lord's day. It's too strict. It's too rigid. There are people that come visit from time to time, but they would never present themselves for membership because they're not willing to give up the restaurant on Sunday night. They're not willing to give up the football game on Sunday afternoon. And they're not even presuming to present themselves for membership because of that. If it weren't for the Lord, we wouldn't have that problem. We could fill this place up. We've had a lot of visitors who would have stayed and joined. If the Lord hadn't made the rules the way he did. You see what I'm saying It's the Lord that causes the problem. But it's the Lord that helps us end the problem. You see it's because of our righteous stand in the name of Christ. For which they hate us and persecute us and speak evil of us. The reputation of Christ is at once the cause for and the encouragement in our sufferings for my name's sake see that's what makes this so commendable not just the endurance but the reason for it for my name's sake you endured you put up with it you stayed when it seemed that you couldn't endure another minute but you stayed why because you love the name of jesus For my name's sake. You knew what the consequences would be if you fell under pressure. If you let your weariness make you quit. You knew the cost. For my name's sake. It is by the strength of the one whose side we've taken. That we're enabled to endure the sufferings that follow taking his side. That's what makes it so commendable. They did it for Jesus' sake you live for Christ, you'll get the commendation of Christ. Or quickly let me draw out some implications summarized from both of these last two messages. In the first place, notice this, that the work of openly and firmly resisting the teachings and the teachers of error is a tedious and difficult work. And it is one in which the church is apt to fail because it's so hard. It's not easy to stand up against those that would kill the truth and kill its practice. Brethren, it's, it's a full-time job. It's house to house. It's public. It's private. It's diligence. It's the word of God. And the men of God have to live up under and The church has to strengthen them and support them and stand behind them in it. You see, the Lord speaks to the whole church at Ephesus. He's addressing it to the angel, the pastor of the church at Ephesus, but he's commending the whole church. So there's a both-and here. Pastors lose their ability to enforce truth and keep it if the people aren't with it, and if the people won't suffer with it, and if the people deny it. If what we preach tonight, you deny tomorrow, it undercuts everything we do. Just as if what I preached, if I denied it in my practice tomorrow, I would undercut what I said. If you, if anyone in this church goes out tomorrow and cusses out your boss or somebody working with you, you have denied the sanctity of this church and what it's supposed to stand for. You're no different from the rest of those churches. If you go out to your workplace tomorrow and lie and cheat a bit, and they see you do it, or if they watch you ogling on the dirty pictures if you do the same thing the rest do, you couldn't undercut everything we preach. Just as much as if I did it. Unless you want to live a life in which you don't tell anybody where you go to church. And live like that. Or you're ashamed. The work of openly and firmly resisting the teachings and the teachings of the teachers of error is tedious and difficult. Church is often not up to the task. Why? Because those folks that are like that are subtle and they're usually popular. Hard to get them. Second, they're powerful. They usually have a power base. They usually come in sneakily and they build a power base before they pronounce themselves. The man of sin is going to be revealed a long time after the mystery of iniquity has been at work. He's stirring and sowing and gathering together the to battle, the people for the battle, and then he declares war. They don't normally come in and say, now we're going to start a new religion in this church. I'm going to preach a different doctrine. I have a few practices that are different ones. No, no. They come in pretending to believe the same things and practice the same things. And suddenly they go from house to house and privately get people after them. They get the affections of people. And before you know it, off they run. Thank God we haven't had that happen here. I'm thankful that God spared this church. But that's the nature of the game. And if a church is going to undergird that, a church is going to have to know it's going to be a hard and tedious task men are powerful, they are unscrupulous and they'll lie to retain their influence. I want you to notice quickly back in Revelation 2 in six of these seven letters I know you all thought I was about to quit I'm going to keep you five more minutes I hate to do that to you but I want to finish tonight. In Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 in six of the seven churches there are those who are liars spoken of in chapter 2 verse 2 there are those in Ephesus who call themselves apostles and they're not. You see that? In verse 9 in the church at Smyrna there are those that say they're Jews and they're not. In verse 20 in the church at Thyatira there's a Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. The implication is she's not what she says she is. In chapter 3 verse 1 in Sardis you have a name that you live, but you're dead. You've got, you're lying about what you are and what your condition is. In verse 9, the church at Philadelphia, I'll give to the synagogue of Satan and them that say they are Jews and they're not. And in verse 17, you say in Laodicea that you're rich, but you're not. In six of the seven churches, explicit statements to people who are pretending and deceiving themselves and others that they're one thing and they're not that. That whole theme of dishonesty pervades this thing in these churches. And it's not surprising that the nature of these wolves is that they come in sheep's clothing, but they leave wolf tracks. You keep an eye on the tracks. And you'll understand the character. But you see, that requires a scrupulosity and a scrutiny in a church. That requires a tediousness in a church. You've got to stay on your toes. You've got to know the Bible. You've got to be discerning or you'll miss it. And they'll sneak off with some of the sheep. So this work is tough. We must be prepared for it. and We must all together pull to make sure that we guard the propagation of the truth in its purity and the practice of the truth of its integrity. In the second place, notice this. Low doctrines and loose morals are intimately connected. Low doctrines and loose morals are intimately connected. And there are two sides to it. The first is this. The conscience that is not wounded by false doctrine is not tender enough to be hurt or alarmed by unholy practice. Do you hear that? The conscience that is not wounded by false doctrine, who can let things be preached that aren't biblical and true and not be offended, is not tender enough to be hurt or alarmed at unholy practice. Reformation in doctrine always leads to the excision of sinners and sin in a church. If you don't get to that, you've really not come to understand truth. Doctrine hasn't been reformed. Not thoroughly, until sin starts leaving and sinners start getting changed or getting out. If you disregard Christ as a teacher, you're going to forget his authority as a king. And you're going to lose the power of Christ to save you. If what he says doesn't bug you, and if you don't know what he says enough to sense it when somebody's lying about what he says then he's not able to do anything for you because if he has no authority as a teacher, he has no authority as a king. Your conscience, if it can allow false doctrine, will also allow bad practice. And that's why that the two go together in every church you'll find where their doctrine of God, their doctrine of man, their doctrine of salvation, their doctrine of the church is faulty. You'll see the church filled with all manner of bad people calling themselves Christians and getting by with it. Doctrine and practice are are connected intimately. But see, the second side is loose morals often are the root of the bad doctrine. The bad doctrine comes in, people follow it, and then people start living bad. But on the other hand, a lot of times the reason they're susceptible to the bad doctrine is because there's already a problem in the heart in their practice. Now that is so clear that it's, I hesitate even to recite the text. But you remember Romans 1? They knew God. They did not glorify him as God. So God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are inconvenient. But well, why did it? Why did they not glorify God? They did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Why? Because there were certain practices which this God wouldn't allow. And they were bent on those practices. So they refashioned God into a God who would allow and encourage those practices. Why worship Venus, the goddess of love? Because she's in perfect harmony with temple prostitution. That's why. And the God of the Bible's not. What was it that God called Israel when they went off to other idols? The harlot. What was it? Adultery. Why does God select that kind of imagery to describe idolatry? And why does God condemn that kind of individual sin so vigorously in the Bible? Because there's this lusting of the heart that always, if it's unchecked, leads men to perverting doctrine. As one man said, if you bludgeon your conscience, your conscience will bludgeon your truth, your doctrine. What am I saying? You allow the continuation of unmortified sin in your heart, and it will finally spill over in heresy someplace. You'll have to, if you stay in the church, you'll have to get a God that conforms to your life. You'll have to get soft on some aspect of the law. You'll have to get soft on some aspect of the gospel. You'll have to change your view in order to corroborate your practice. You can't live like that. It comes suddenly. It comes suddenly when a preacher allows himself to do things that are immoral and break his conscience and won't fight it and won't deal with it. You know what will happen? His preaching will fade. His searching of others' consciences will back down. His own doctrines will be twisted a bit. There will be things he just can't bring himself to pound the pulpit about. He just can't do it. The strength is out of it. He can't do it with power. Now, there are some men that are amazingly resilient at this point. I can get their picture in the paper breathing out condemnation to a brother whom they turned in for sexual public sin and saying a cancer on the body of Christ while they are planning a tryst at a local motel. But if you go back and analyze some of that preaching you'll see a little bit clearer the nature of that kind of condemnation It's very seldom the condemnation of the sins that are sitting in front of the preacher. It's usually somebody that's someplace else loose morals romans 1 is a classic example second peter chapter 2 is another and i think i'll not have you turn there but some other time turn and remember second peter 2 describing the false apostles and false preachers false prophets verses 2 and then verse 13 and following he talks about lasciviousness and lusts and through much wantonness they entice the souls of others and get them to believe the false doctrines even denying the lord that bought them how do you get somebody to deny christ you appeal to his itchy ear and he'll heap your kind of teaching to himself after his own lusts second timothy chapter four they'll not endure sound doctrine but will heap teachers to themselves after their own lusts. They'll go find the preacher whose preaching encourages or at least allows their lusts. 1 Timothy 6 tells about those same men in Ephesus who through love of money, the lusting after things and materialism, led astray a whole people and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. You can't separate doctrine from morals. They're intimately connected. And at the root of much false preaching is false living. Because men's minds are going to change God into an image that fits their lifestyle. One of the truest evidences of a regenerate heart is a man who refuses to bow and change the truth even if it condemns him. Don't you ever sacrifice one iota of truth to save one ounce of your sin or you will lose your soul in the process. And don't you ever tolerate it in the church. You mustn't do it. Well, finally, brethren, let us guard ourselves against bad teaching and bad living. And let's guard our children. Christ hates both. And we're going to have to do a better job, I think, not to expose our kids to all that this world is offering. We're going to have to probably be considered very narrow. You know what the primary accusation against the early Christians was in Rome? They were antisocial. Do you know that? They wouldn't go to the Colosseum. And watch lions eat people. Perfectly acceptable form of entertainment in Rome. Popular form of entertainment. Built big coliseums to do such. Christians wouldn't go. I don't know how far we're going to have to go with that, brethren. But I know that whatever it means and whatever it takes, we must guard us and our children against false living and false teaching. Because Christ hates it. Well, I may have sounded a bit jumbled. I hope you get the point. The Lord Jesus Christ has commended the church at Ephesus and will commend us for a holy intolerance of bad doctrine and bad practice, which he hates, and he loves us when we hate it, and even endure, because of our hatred of it and our intolerance of it, suffering at the hands of those who hate us as a result. Let us ask God for grace that we may endure. And that we may be able to get the commendation of the Lord in the day of judgment. That we have endured to the end against all manner of unrighteous persecution. God give us the kind of grace that we would be able to have some cause for people to hate us for righteousness. And then if they do, that God would give us grace to continue and bear up under it. Shall we pray together, please? Our oh, Father, we are unable to teach adequately that which you have given to us. We're unable to understand it. We just ask for mercy and grace to translate it to our hearts and conform our hearts to it that we may please you in our living. Oh God, we do ask you for grace. For a holy intolerance in our own hearts, in the hearts of those with whom we have authority and influence. And in our church, every picture of ungodliness and every sound of untruth. And we ask you to help us, Lord, that if our stand brings upon us any form of suffering, that we may have grace to endure it gladly because we do it for your name'sake. Lord, of all things, let your name be in this place and never be slandered. Receive our thanks that you have helped us and preserved us and been merciful to us. O oh, Lord, help us not to forget you in the heat of the moment. Give grace to us. Teach us the word of truth. Make us a pure church. We ask these things to the glory of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.